Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Mickey Badlamenti, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, we've modified our church schedule to help keep people safe. We currently offer on-site Sunday morning services at 9 and 11 a.m. with limited capacity, and we ask that you register ahead of time. Please visit www.rockpoint.org slash register before you join in person. That way we can save your seat. And we also live stream the 11 a.m. service on our YouTube channel. You can always find Rock Point on Facebook or visit the website for more information, including important schedule updates. And while COVID may have affected how we do church, it cannot diminish our efforts together to be the church. We look forward to connecting with you. Enjoy the podcast. Um, I have a significant announcement I need to make to you to be aware of two things, really. One is we are having a baptismal service, our first in um, what's been almost a year now or so, on Good Friday. And so we will be having that if you have not been baptized. Um, If you would uh, check in on the website or at the information center at the back, we have a simple orientation that you need to have before you can be part of that. But that will be part of our Good Friday service. Now, here's the really significant issue. In two weeks' time, it'll be one year since we've been in the pandemic. And um, we've followed very strict guidelines and protocols, more so than a lot of other fellowships. We are making an adjustment to those starting in two weeks. Not today, not next Sunday, but the Sunday after that. On that Sunday, we're going to shift in only one manner. You will still wear a mask into service, out of the service, for standing, singing, moving, anything else. But when we're having the message portion, we're going to give relief to those of you that would like to, to remove your mask during the message, when you're not singing, you're not speaking, shouting, running around crazy, okay? That will begin in two weeks' time. We're continuing to keep our registration in place, and this is going to mean we're going to continue to keep our social distancing and managing how many people are on location. So again, registration will stay the same, social distancing will stay the same, unless you're a family that's here for dedication and hanging out together. Um, and, uh, but the masking will change strictly for the message portion, uh, for those of you that would like to do that. Um, now, along with this, we're going to be making a slight adjustment for Easter Sunday in order to try to keep our distancing and protection on that. We are going to be offering three services on Sunday. Uh, part of it, maybe there'll be more people we anticipate, but mainly we want to make sure we're still spacing things out. And so those three services are going to be at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., and 11.30 a.m. Children's Ministries will be involved with all three of those services. Our expectation is that following that Sunday, we'll continue back to a two-service format. Um, We haven't finalized this, but we'll probably live stream the latter two services. And so for those of you that are tuning in by live stream, you can be aware of that. Registration will be required. That's kind of the changes that we're offering, again, in two weeks' time, and then on um, Easter Sunday. So those are some basic changes. Uh, We mentioned a couple of weeks ago, a couple months back, actually, that we were in the end of the third quarter of the game. Well, if that's the case, and we're coming up to a year's time, that means each quarter has been now about four months in length. I think we are now entering into the fourth quarter of the game, the final quarter of the game. You guys have played well so far, especially with each other, okay? We have four more months possibly in this, give or take some space on that. 
but this is the final quarter. You've done extremely well. You've not been divisive. You've not been hostile to one another. You've been incredibly patient, I think, and graceful, even though we have differing views on how things are operating. Next couple of weeks or months, you still may not get the seats you want, but at least we're going to be still doing these things together. And um, I appreciate the way that you have handled this uh, thus far as a congregation. You've done well. Uh, when I played football uh, years back, um, it was always important to try to win. But to me, at the end of the day, was to know that I played the game well at least and had not taken my team down, that my contribution at least was not part of the reason for the loss. So just finish this time well, okay? Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 13. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. He spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, of whom he also designated apostles. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we come before you this day, and we thank you for these children, Lord God, and the blessings that they are. And we just continue to ask your blessing upon all our parents who are in the process of raising children in very difficult times. Lord, we thank you for the provision that you've made for us. So, Lord, whether we have offered tithes and offerings through online or in the service at one of the boxes in the back or so, Lord, we do it freely and openly before you and in thanksgiving, and, and, and we just honor you with that. And now, God, we pray that you would speak to us out of your word today, challenge and address our own heart and our own spirit and our own mind. In Jesus' name, amen. This passage, as we are continuing on in the series entitled Deep Calling, uh, Deep Calling to Fellowship, titling today. Jesus is, as we're continuing in Luke chapter 6, he has separated himself to go up to a mountainside to pray and to spend the entire time of the night to do this. Now, this was a regular pattern for Jesus. He would withdraw on a regular basis. He'd engage people closely, and then he'd withdraw for a time of settling his own spirit, aligning himself with the Father, and, and being able to respond to what was taking place in the world. This time, he's separating for a specific reason, though. We're told in the next verse that when morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them and whom he designated as um, apostles. And so pulls away for a very specific reason, an extremely important reason. He's going to choose the 12 who are going to build the church and further the kingdom of God after he has departed. A critical decision. Critical. And so in the midst of this critical decision, Jesus separates himself off for a time of prayer to align himself with his Father. At its core, prayer in its heart and soul is fellowship with God. It's having a conversation, but beyond a conversation, it's engaging in relationship with God. Now, there's a picture I want to show you really quickly. It's a picture of um, a coffee place, evidently out in Vancouver. Uh, um, I think it's Washington or so. And Evidently, there was a woman who had come in for her coffee. Now, this is not Starbucks. It's a place called Dutch Brothers, I think, or so. But the important thing is it is a place that, that offers coffee and therefore by itself is a holy place, okay? So this woman exhibited some um, disturbance. She was emotionally distraught. And the baristas noted that as they're fulfilling the order. It's interesting how these people stopped in the midst of their work to notice 
the hurt of an individual. Turns out the woman had just, she was in her 30s, and she had just lost her husband uh, through death. He had died, and she was distraught. And so these baristas spontaneously decided to pray for her. They're all reaching over, reaching in, trying to have a hand on her, just to lay hands on her and pray for her. This picture went viral very quickly um, because of just what was taking place. It said, after the prayers, the woman, uh, quote, just shook all of our hands and wiped her face. Ed said, uh, thank you. Prayer, a lot of times, is this kind of personal interaction where we pray for one another or we intercede for one another. After every service, we used to offer prayer around the front following the service. With the recent uh, environment, we've offered it uh, at those two great windows on either side of the out there. And so people have, have every time, I think, practically after service, have gone to one of those stations of prayer where people are interceding. It's a pathway for the divine, for something to interact in those moments, whether it was in Vancouver or whether it's here, following a service or a gathering. But in this situation, that's not what's taking place in Luke. In this specific situation, we're finding something completely different. He's trying to make this really significant decision. And so he's withdrawn from human contact to align himself with the things of God. Now, we make decisions all the time. You made probably 20 to 30 decisions before you even came here. What clothes to wear, whether to brush your teeth or not, hope most of you did. Um, what direction to take when the person cuts you off, whether to hit the horn or not hit the horn. What blinker, all the different decisions and processes you made, whether to bring all of your children or leave one of them behind bound up in a closet. Whatever decision you made, okay, and a lot of times we don't spend time in agonizing prayer. Oh God, should I wear the black socks or the white socks? God, what would reveal your heart to me in this moment? Rarely do we do that. But for really critical decisions, we not only do, but in fact, we absolutely should. And I would argue not just for the critical decisions, and we'll see that as we go along. Soren Kierkegaard, the great philosopher, one time said the function of prayer, theologian, said the function of prayer is not to influence God, but rather to change the nature of the one who prays. It's not so much to change the nature of God, but to change the nature of the person who's praying. Now, Jesus pulls away for this moment of, of quietness. Uh, that doesn't mean that we can't have public prayer. We just did that. And we can do that. But prayer, generally speaking, unless we're in a group setting of some type that is part of that shared moment, is something that we're supposed to be doing in private. When we look into the scriptures and we see Matthew chapter 6 verse 1 and Matthew 5, 6, and 7 kind of parallel what we're studying here in Luke. It's similar material to what Jesus was referencing. And he says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. In other words, if you're going to do a, an act of kindness or, or grace, don't do it where everyone can see you. Do it quietly and, and, and do that in a way that just releases that. Then it's done before God. The truth of the matter is, of course, a lot of times 
when we do that, even in secret and quiet, we're secretly hoping that someone will notice and think how cool we are. But he's saying, don't get caught up with that. Now, he takes it down a little bit further, and he says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues or churches and in the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Now, I have seen a lot of people pray over the years. And sometimes the way that they pray sometimes it's very eloquent, sometimes it's very broken. I've even seen people avoid prayer. It used to be in this service, and at least one or two people here will recall a time decades ago when um, we would close one of the services in prayer on a regular basis, and my father who was pastor at that time would ask someone to close in prayer. And so as we're closing, um, uh, Dave Harrington, would you please close us in prayer? And we would close our eyes, and, and Dave Harrington's voice would boom out in this prayer. But I remember one time in particular when he had asked so-and-so to pray, and, and as everyone's quiet, someone else's voice began to pray. Found out afterwards that the person that my father designated to prayer had basically said, not me, and shook to another person in the row who decided to pick up and cover and carry the ball in that moment of time. There have been some situations I've seen. One very specific one comes to mind of people who decide they've got a ministry of prayer. And I think that can be true to some degree, I guess. Though I think all of us have that. So they would pray very eloquently, very powerfully. People were drawn to them in prayer. They saw their holiness. They saw their... their evidently unique relationship with God. But Mickey and I watched the situation closely and for reasons I won't go into, it became very clear very quickly that this person really didn't have that kind of relationship with God. In fact, what they were doing in their eloquent prayers um, that happened a lot was drawing attention to themselves. And what was really difficult is when others began to be copying that and to emulate that. I don't say that as an issue of judgment, I say that's a terrifying thing to watch. Not just that somebody's thinking they're so close and doing what they're doing, but that others emulate it and follow along with it. That somehow the idea of someone eloquently and powerfully, somehow, those of you that are parents, do any of your children ever approach you and say, oh, dear magnificent one who hath given me life, I wish that I could take the car out for just tonight. You have been so kind and gracious in all your ways. In all the many years that you have benefited me with, with gifts and food and, yea, the very breath of life. <sighs> I praise thee for thou art great in knowledge. Can I have the car? Or how many of your kids would say, hey, Dad, can I have the car tonight? 
well, this and this and this. Uh, yeah, I know, I probably didn't do that right, but hey, could I still do that? Or you engage in a real conversation. When we're praying to God, it's our Father. And that, that doesn't mean we're casual about it, but it also doesn't mean that we have to be so overwhelmingly loquacious and feel like we have to fill in a lot of lines in between. And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues on the street corners to be seen by others. I tell you, they've received their rewards. But Matthew 6, 6 says, but when you pray, when you and I pray, we're supposed to go into our room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. One of the most difficult things I had beginning in ministry was we used to have these little short pews on the platform that the pastors would sit on. They never would trust us with a full-size pew. It was just the short pew. And um, I remember how strange it was to be standing in front of people as everyone's worshiping. And I know everyone's turning their face towards God, but a lot of times they'd be watching us too, and to try to worship was awkward at first. It took me time to forget everyone else and realize, wait a minute, this is about God and me, not you guys, and release and worship that way. It was the same way with prayer. You'd want to step up and as a young pastor sit here and, and be so profound that they'd recall your words and people would be moved and inspired. But that's not what it's about. It's about communication with God. And it changed in time how I'm supposed to approach it. Why would we not approach? Have you ever not approached your parent because your sibling was just so much more eloquent in how they communicated with your parent? No, you still reached out to him in your own way, and that authenticity has meaning. It goes on in verses 7 and 8. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask him. In other words, don't sit here and say, Dear Heavenly Father, 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 I need a car, I need a car, I need a car, a car, I need, I need a car, I need a car, I need a car, I need, I need a car, I need, I really need a car, I really need a car. You don't get repetitious in what you're doing. That's what Eastern religions do as a way of clearing their mind out of things. And it's not the same as engaging God. Now, that doesn't mean you can't say the same prayer day after day. God, I need a car. Guide me in how that is or provide for that. Amen. And the next day, I need a car. Guide me in that. Help me to understand what that is. Make it real. Make it genuine. We can pray for the same things, but this vain babbling going over and over and over again is not how we're supposed to engage God. It's supposed to be authentic. It's supposed to be real. It's supposed to be genuine, out of fellowship and out of relation. And now, having said that, I want to take you to the most divisive passage of Scripture that immediately will divide any congregation as they gather in prayer. And that's continuing on in Matthew chapter nine or chapter six, rather nine through fourteen, because Jesus then gives an example at another point in time. His disciples ask him, but he gives an example. He says, "This is then how you should pray: Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name." It's a fellowshipping line. I'm talking to my Father. I'm not going to say the language there is Abba. So a lot of times they would translate that as Daddy, but it's not a casual thing. It's not like I'm sitting here saying, "Hey, Daddy-o." What's up, man? God, I want... No, it's, it's father. It's, I can even say dad. 
But when I say it to my, to, my, to my earthly father when he was alive, it would still be respectful. So we don't be flippant with God. There's respect there, but there's an intimacy. There's a fellowship. Our Father, hallowed, holy be your name. We're not going to mess with the holiness or righteousness of God. Then it goes on and says, your kingdom come. That's about community. All of us who are followers of Christ are in community called the kingdom of God. It also means when we say your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that it's the part of every believer and follower of Christ to pray and work for the continual advancement of God's kingdom on this place, that we're constantly praying, God, overcome. It's not capitalism I'm caught up with. It's not communism I'm caught up with. It's the kingdom of God. Help me to understand how to examine those systems or any other systems in light of your kingdom, in light of your value structure and how we're supposed to pursue you, God. And then it goes on in one of the most basic, simple things of that time. Give us our daily bread. Meet our physical needs. God cares about your day-to-day existence and every situation you're having to deal with. And then we read, reach this incredibly divisive passage of Scripture. And forgive us our debts. Really? Or is it trespasses? You ever been to a place where they've read this, maybe at a funeral or something else, and, and everything's going along great? Oh, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, and this is heaven, give us day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, trespasses, debts, trespasses, and everyone goes off in different targets. Okay? For the purposes of today, we're all dealing with debts. But basically, what this is talking about is this I'm saying, God, forgive my debt. I have trespassed in some way your holiness, and that's made a debt that I can't pay. Forgive my debt of my trespasses against you, the way I have violated the boundaries you have set. It's not that I'm no longer saved. It's not that I'm no longer your child, but I have let some action of mine, some stretching of boundary or violation of things in some way um, create a rift or a difficulty in our fellowship. So before we continue on and reach deeper fellowship, I'm asking for forgiveness for the way I have exceeded the boundaries of your grace, trespassed and incurred this debt. Forgive that and restore the fellowship. goes on and says, and we also have forgiven our debtors, those who have violated our boundaries, those who have trespassed into our space, those who have caused us harm and injury, that they should be indebted to us for the pain that they have caused. God, bring down fire and destroy them. Taking a little liberty with the scripture there. We just ask for forgiveness for the way we trespassed and violated God's boundaries and his holiness. How dare we turn around and condemn somebody else? Instead, we're to sit here and say, look at whatever's interrupted our fellowship with others. doesn't mean we have to allow them to continue to repeat those boundary violations or be placed in a situation that destroys us, but we are to forgive that as we move on and then lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. We're not supposed to be going into temptation of things where we would do things that we shouldn't do. God doesn't do that for us, but he does test us sometimes. Now, I'll say on that side note here, one thing I have seen within the kingdom of God, within the church of Jesus Christ that I don't understand at all. There's a lot I don't, but this one particularly I don't. 
There are those individuals, maybe some of us in this room, we're Christians, we're followers of Christ, we've, we know we've been forgiven, we know we're supposed to forgive others. Someone else hurt us, another Christian even. They hurt us, and they should know better, and they're a Christian, they hurt us, and we're vindictive about it. Not only do we not just forgive them, but we are going to damage them. We'll go out of our way to vindictively damage them. I understand that. I say that if that's who you are and that's what you do, there is no way that you're a follower of Christ. If you are vindictively going out of your way to create trouble for somebody else, it doesn't line up right. It doesn't make sense. In fact, it says, um, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Luke chapter 6 at one point in time, Jesus saying, verses 27, 28, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. It doesn't mean having to tolerate certain situations and stay in them, but it means that we're supposed to bless those who curse you. Pray actively for those who mistreat us. goes on with prayer in Acts chapter 16 where Paul and Silas are imprisoned and they're praying and singing hymns and suddenly they're freed and liberated that even in the darkness of our, of our imprisonment that we're to be praying, we're to be singing and sometimes we're freed and the doors swing open and other times we stay in that situation and our spirit is challenged to grow as we pray and continue to align ourselves with God. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, we're told of people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I'll hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sin and heal their land. Those that humble themselves, doesn't mean we have to break ourselves down and beat ourselves up. It means that I see myself for who I am. No greater, no lesser than exactly who I am. Now, quickly, there were a group of people that um, Jesus encountered in these two previous Sabbaths we talked about. In fact, he is constantly bumping across these people. These individuals were called Pharisees. The Pharisees, the very term meant separated ones. They were kind of outside of society. They were so righteous, they wouldn't dirty themselves with, with common things. They were the religious leaders of the, of the day, and they were also um, the baseline for which most of Orthodox uh, Jewish uh, thought it evolves from today, or evolved from today. They were immensely popular. And these Pharisees were people who had a way of pursuing God that follows all the rules and the guidelines. They achieved salvation. They didn't receive it. And then when Jesus comes along and says, look, we're not to ignore the rules. The rules are fine, but rules without relationship mean nothing. If you're just following the rules and you don't have fellowship with God, you don't have a relationship with God, that doesn't mean anything. And the Pharisees are like, wait a minute, you're completely deconstructing our scaffolding of how we climb to reach God. And if this is true, this means anybody can have access to God, not just us guys. And that was unacceptable to them. It was something that was difficult for them to comprehend with the exception of someone like Nicodemus and, and Joseph of Arimathea that we talked about last week. They could not comprehend it. And Jesus was constantly dealing with these guys. And one of the questions we have to ask ourselves today is, are we a Pharisee? You know Jeff Foxworthy? Everybody hear of him? You know the classic thing? You might be a redneck if... You might be a redneck if you think common stock is a pig owned by more than one person. 
You might be a redneck if most of your in-laws are outlaws. You might be a redneck if your resume includes your high scores on video games. You might be a redneck if you made up your social security number. You might be a redneck if your financial planner told you to buy lottery tickets. And he goes on and on and on. But what if we were a Pharisee? Would we know it? R.T. Kendall wrote something recently and he said, a few things to understand. We might be a Pharisee. We esteem the way we've always done it above change, even when the latter is not heretical or against Scripture. That we might be Pharisees if we're more concerned to uphold our theology than to help people. We might be a Pharisee if we love to point the finger. We might be a Pharisee if we major on minors. We might be a Pharisee if we are motivated by money. We might be a Pharisee if we call another person a Pharisee. Dan Denzel put forth five questions to ask oneself to determine how much of a Pharisee one might be. First, is there any category of people who are bigger sinners than me? Does the story of Simon the Pharisee have relevance for others, but not so much for me? The woman comes and breaks the perfume over Jesus and is weeping over the, the, the thing there. And Simon is standing his household saying, man, if he knew what kind of sinner she was, he wouldn't let her touch her. And Jesus says a parable lined up just for Simon. We might be a Pharisee. When Scripture identifies examples of sin, do I tend to think about the sins of others rather than my own sin? For is there anyone I am mad at right now who needs to change more than I do? Oh, everybody needs to change more than I do. Especially you. And then the final one, would I be shocked to see Jesus accept certain sinners if they came to him in repentance? True humility is simply seeing things the way they are. The Pharisees saw themselves as something great when they weren't. Some of the sinners who came to Christ saw themselves as just a sinner needing God's mercy. The final thing I'd offer in this area of Pharisaism is this. To me, this is the one that's most significant. You or I might be a Pharisee if we are smug and not brokenhearted at the sin of others. If we are smug and not brokenhearted at the sin of others. To conclude this gathering, I want to take you to a story that Jesus himself spoke to. And in this story, this parable that he had, he addresses the Pharisees directly. We find it in Luke chapter 18, 9 through 14. And it begins like this, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Jesus told this parable Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, a separated one, the other a tax collector. There was nothing lower on the social scale than these individuals who had sold out their own uh, um, uh, national citizens to work for Rome, often taking a cut themselves. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, uh, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, 
Or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. There are four eyes in his prayer. In other translation, the King James has five eyes in the prayer. The Pharisee is sitting here and he says, I gave a tenth of everything I have. This guy tithed. He was a financial contributor. It says that he fasted twice a week. Uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays were generally market days when people would come to market and gather their goods and, and, and eat and, and discuss the thing with one another. The Pharisees were known for fasting on those two days. They would whiten their faces and they'd be disheveled and they'd walk around the marketplace with a hangdog expression. So all these people that are eating and drinking and handling out and moving foods, they'd see this very, this very righteous person going around. Obviously, he's fasting because you can just see the agony and the pain and the struggle of the fast of this very righteous man. I give a tenth. I fast twice a week, mostly on market days where people are going to notice. And then in comparison, I'm not like other people. I'm not like Peter. I'm a whole lot better than Peter in at least five different areas that I can imagine right now. But that's all right, because Peter sits here and says he's better than, than, uh, um, than Ruth by at least six other points that he can go for. Ruth's really disturbed about that until she suddenly realizes that compared to, you know, um, anybody else practically here, she's got ten points on all of them. But the problem is we're not compared to one another. It's not my righteousness compared to Peter's or his compared to Ruth's. It's our righteousness compared to God, and none of us line up. None of us can achieve that. So this type of mindset, this kind of blindness was so complete, it was so total. There's a guy actually named Simeon who basically says if there were 50 righteous people in the entire world, I and my son would be among those 50. If there were 30, I and my son would be amongst those 30. If there were only 20, I and my son would be amongst those 20. If there were only 10, Absolutely, my son and I would be amongst that ten if there were only five, my son and I. If there were only two righteous men viewed by God in the whole world, it would be my son and I. And if there were only one, oh, it would absolutely be me, not my son. It was with this blindness that this man comes up to approach and to engage God. But then you have this other character, this tax collector. He doesn't come close. The scripture says in verse 13 that he stands at a distance. It says that he doesn't even look up. He keeps his eyes down. He cries out and he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. There's no I in there anywhere. There's an awareness of God. There's a cry for mercy, and there's a declaration that he's a sinner, and the declaration's made in such a way as to imply that if there was nobody else, I would be still the worst sinner, that of everyone in the world, I am the worst sinner. You see, he viewed himself as the worst of all men, and the Pharisee viewed himself as the greatest of all men. But it gets a little more detailed if you understand some of the Middle Eastern mindset and you see another line that's in here. 
You see, it's not only that he's calling out to God to have mercy and he's identifying as a sinner. It's not even that he's refusing to look up. It's not even that he stands at a distance. But the scripture tells us that he beat his breast. Now today, in our mindset, we sit here and say, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? That would be our visual in our society. But in those days, it was a beating of the breast. They would do it when they mourned a loss, when someone died. Oh, God, I miss them. Oh, that he died. When they had a disaster befall them of financial things. Oh, we've just lost everything. And so when this man stands at a distance with his head down, and this Pharisee's making comparisons. He has only, eyes only downcast, but only for God. And what does he do? He says, oh, my sin. God, my sin. God, I have done such wrong. I don't know what I'm going to do. God, help me. Please have mercy. Have mercy. Somewhere in that moment of time, in his beating of breasts and the torturedness of his soul, a peace descended upon him. Why do I say that? Because Jesus says in the very next verse, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. There was a peace. There was a settledness, there was a quietness, there was a resolution. But the really tragic thing is, the Pharisee walked home feeling pretty good too. But he was not in relationship or fellowship with God. This man was. We're to approach him as our father. We're to be part of a kingdom that transcends communism and capitalism and every other ism and system that's out there. We're to be conscious of the ways that we trespass lest we violate the boundaries of the relationship we have with him and also forgive those who have violated our boundaries. We're to be in fellowship with God. And this is why 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 Verse 17, the apostle was able to say that we are to pray without ceasing. That we are to have fellowship with God. An interaction with him that's not prideful or arrogant or based on what everyone else is watching us. But in the quietness, in the closed places in our house that we're to pursue him and if the prayer isn't eloquent, it doesn't matter. You're, you're this child coming to him. That we don't compare ourselves to others. That we simply come. Are you a Pharisee? Am I? Are we smug? Feeling self-righteous and secure when we see others fall? Or are we broken by that? challenged by that in tears how do we approach God and so Jesus pulled away 
got to a place quiet by himself to align himself with his Father. This morning, as a way of aligning ourselves even together as a congregation, I'm going to ask that we would close this gathering by together reciting the Lord's Prayer. Just to avoid any conflict, we're going with debtors. But think about it, of the call to fellowship that it means. And if there's anyone in this gathering who you were caught with this parable of the tax collector, realize that even now in this moment, you can come to Christ in the same simple fashion and receive not only forgiveness, but a whole new life in Christ. Well, let's recite this together. Matthew chapter 6. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Lord, I thank you that you've walked us as a people thus far. I pray, God, that we would argue against any sense of Pharisaism that would rise within us, that we would forgive freely, even as we've been forgiven freely, and that we would pursue active fellowship with you. And God, be, let us be conscious of the opportunities to pray with one another, even as these baristas were conscious of that moment, even in the midst of their workplace. We commit these things into your hands, and we pray that you continue to guide and shape us as your people as we approach you in humility. In Jesus' name, amen.